0: Hello and welcome to Advanced Practice Weekly. My name is AJ Bat. Welcome to the program. Today I am joined by Timmy Austin, consultant nurse, works in emergency care. Today he's here to talk to us about healthcare complexities. Tim, welcome to the program. Hi AJ. Thank you for inviting me today. So Tim, tell me a little bit about yourself and a bit of background. Um, ha- how long have you been working in the NHS for, and what do you currently do? So my background is um, registered nurse
1: in the NHS for 33 years and um, most of that time has been spent in emergency, urgent and emergency care and my clinical background has mostly been in as an emergency practitioner or emergency nurse practitioner and working at enhanced and advanced level. I did my advanced practice MSc in 2003 and uh, also did my independent prescribing and I've been working in autonomous roles since then.
0: Wow, so you've been around quite a long time, Tim. You've obviously seen quite a few changes within the NHS and within the work streams that happen in the emergency care field, haven't you?
1: Definitely seen the um, sort of evolution of ED from quite early days when there was just one ED consultant no specialist nurses and gradually see the um, introduction of enhanced and advanced practice and it's been quite exciting times and we've still got a long way to go so I'm enjoying being part of it.
0: Yeah there's you've probably seen a lot more nurses and allied healthcare professionals now seeing patients at the bedside, um, which would have been traditionally seen by consultants and doctors, but are now being seen by our allied healthcare workforce, haven't you? Definitely seeing
1: an expansion of all roles and definitely this blended multi-professional workforce. I think we're we're still very much probably at the beginning of it. Certainly with advanced practice, it's very much multi-professional led. We have physios, nurses, So, Tim, just off the top of your head, do you know how many advanced practitioners you have working in in your emergency department at the moment? So, in in the emergency department, we have five ACPs, three qualified and two in training. Um, But we do have aspirations to grow that workforce and grow the uh, ACP workforce across um, the emergency floor. So, in acute medicine, in SDEC and in the wider specialities that do come to the emergency department. And um, although I won't be uh, an integral part of that, I, I hope to
0: help where I can that's really good to hear especially coming from an HE point of view where we want to commission more more master's programs and more students on the ACP um, education ladder so that's really nice to hear that we've got good grand designs on more advanced practitioners so Tim um, now we've got all the introductions out the way and a bit of background let's should we have a look at what we're here to talk about today now I, I spoke to you a few weeks back and you sent me um, some brilliant slides about healthcare complexities and we're just going to talk through some of those healthcare complexities today now, And that you've got on this slide, I've got in front of me, listeners. I'll I'll have to kind of describe it to you because this is the, you know, the wonders of it being kind of radio podcast. There's no no actual images. We've got three um, headlines here, and the first one is situational complexities. The next one is system complexities, and the third one is clinical complexities. So, Tim, do you want to just talk through? So, I find healthcare complexity a really interesting subject, and it was partly born
1: out of my experience of trying to um, expand my role. Certainly when I started out as an emergency practitioner, I was seeing people with sprained ankles and it was quite a linear approach. Um, You'd assess the patient, send them for x-ray if they fitted the criteria, they either had a break or they didn't. But as I expanded, patients came came with multiple comorbidities, polypharmacy, other social factors that affected how their recovery would be influenced? And, I, I, and and that's where I struggled and I saw a lot of other people struggle to expand their
0: practice. right. So for me, the work from what I'm picking out of that probably a lack of would it be experience? would it be training? would it be kind of kind of being thrown in the deep end? So certainly when I started to look deeper, it was all of those factors.
1: It was um, that journey from novice to expert that um, inexperience of feeling, in, internal feeling of not having enough knowledge, and, and exposure to being in those situations, especially when we look at the multi-professional workforce, people come with different backgrounds. Certainly from my professional background of being a registered nurse, we had we, did, we do make autonomous decisions, but not um, we didn't really have a discharging role, which carries a fair bit of risk. And um, Whereas I'm not a paramedic, but paramedics, from what I understand, have a lot more autonomy working at at the roadside or in the patient's home. So where all the professions had different barriers to overcome on this advanced practice journey. I suppose healthcare complexity has been described. Um, There's various definitions, and I suppose I'll just read this one. It's been characterised as multiple dimensions, including co-occurring or multifaceted medical conditions, age, frailty, socioeconomic realities, culture, environment, behaviour and systems factors. So even that's a mouthful, you know it's complex. It's also been described as a wicked problem. In that there is not one solution. When I started, I would thought I needed to learn knowledge, and that would sort the problem out. And I spent hours and hours reading books, and uh, yes, it helped, but it still didn't solve the problem of how to manage that uh, complex patient in front of me.
0: It's interesting because one of the things you said um, earlier on really rang true with me. That as as a paramedic, we have these. we have the ability to discharge and seeing a little bit more autonomy. But when I came from working as in pre-hospital care and into the hospital environment my major issue was managing the number of patients because on an ambulance I would only ever see one patient at a time or on a rare occasion if we went to a big incident there might be a few more but there was always more paramedics around to help when all of a sudden I was working in an urgent care centre and there was a hundred people in the waiting room waiting to be seen I found this probably one of the most stressful things I've ever had to deal with. So I can definitely relate to that and it's really interesting isn't it how you See it from one side as a nurse, and we see it from another side as a paramedic, depending on our background and training.
1: Brilliant, yes. The other thing to mention is um, healthcare complexity has been described um, under three headings, and these headings are situational complexity, system complexity, and clinical complexity. And I'm going to spend a bit of time just um, talking through
0: these briefly with a few examples. So, with the um, situational complexity, this is obviously multifaceted, isn't it? So, I think that the major one is probably the environment for me. That's the one that stands out when I think about situational. What are the other situational complexities that I th- that I probably wouldn't think about, but are, that exists that are there?
1: Obviously, the environment is different in every ACP's um, working working environment, and and that can be the work setting, communications. So other other factors under the situation complexity. The major one for me is actually individual uh, individual people factors. So that can be the individual, the dynamics within the team. Certainly as individuals, we um, we come to work with our own worries, our own health issues. And um, so we're complex human beings. And then we have to look and um, care for patients who are equally or more complex. So we are complex humans looking after other complex human beings. So, you know, it, it, it all adds to the uh, the mix of healthcare complexity.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting, because you, you picked up on something that I probably didn't think didn't come to my mind straight away. And that was me as a, as a clinician is is a complex person, I come to this role with lots of feelings lots of thoughts lots of processes already in my mind but yet yeah, I probably wouldn't have put that into the situational complexity box but I guess it I guess you have to reflect on yourself don't you and think about how you're going to act in this situation
1: we come to work with our own worries our own health issues, and then we have to do a whole day at work managing other people's similar issues, or, or, or in most cases, much worse. So it, it definitely does have a, an effect on on, on how our behaviour and our um, our
0: ability to do the job and learn. Mm. Those human factors don't, aren't they? They really do come in and are quite important. Great. What else have we got on the situational complexity, Tim?
1: So activity factors. So this can be guidelines or policies. So this is workers prescribed task design or the equipment we use All has an influence. And then um, another one that's interesting is a a term that I've described as dynamic uncertainty or complexity. Uh, And this is because um, the situation can change from minute to minute, hour to hour. So on, on, looking at situational complexity, you can be working in the resource room and one minute you're one-to-one um, with a patient and the next minute two two ambulances arrive with critical ill patients. And and you then have to um, prioritize the care you give to, to patients. So it does have an it does have an effect. Uh, and on another level, patients um, can deteriorate. So on one, on, on one minute, you'll be going down one treatment sort of pathway or algorithm. And the next minute, you have to uh, reappraise the situation and consider other factors and maybe alter your treatment plan.
0: Yeah. And in the ambulance service, we would call that a constant dynamic risk assessment <laughs> <laughs> to make it a bit more ambulance term. But yeah, absolutely. There's always stuff changing, especially in that in the emergency room, because you're getting squeezed from both sides, aren't you? You have patients coming in from the front door, you've got ambulances coming in from the back door, and you've just got patients pouring in constantly. It's that that bucket of water constantly being filled. Listeners, we're going to put this slide and um, within the download section of the podcast, so you can have a look at it. And if you when you when you do see it, you'll see how much is actually going on within that situational complexity, and there's a lot going on there. Brilliant, Tim. Should we move on to the next one? Shall we pick up system complexity? That's great. So system complexity is probably
1: something that we don't think of on a day-to-day basis, but does influence the way we practice. So the, the obvious one in, in most settings, but certainly in emergency care, is target-driven healthcare. So we have the four-hour standard. A lot of our day is spent around prioritising care to ensure that we get people admitted or discharged within that four-hour period. So that does influence the way we behave and the way we practise. Another one would be the structure of healthcare commissioning. Probably not something that we'd notice on a day-to-day basis, but um, you know, new new services are commissioned or decommissioned, has a direct influence on the type or, or the, the number of patients that attend your service. Another uh, heading under the system complexity would be the CQC or Care Quality Commission. We probably don't realise it, but we all practice under the governing framework from the CQC and it, it does influence the way we practice. Another heading under the system complexity would be the NHS plan. So a lot of the things we're talking about today or that we are planning advanced clinical practice will have been mapped out in the um, NHS plan so some of our roles that we're doing are as a direct result of the NHS plan and as we move up and we we stretch out that leadership pillar within our roles um, and get more senior we will become much more involved in planning and business planning for more advanced clinical practice posts
0: and uh, enhanced practice posts This um, area of system complexity for me is the one which I feel like I have the least amount of control over. You're absolutely right there. As a practitioner, there are lots of decisions being made at a much higher level. There is much more strategic stuff going on here. But ultimately, I wonder if the, those people that make these decisions understand how they affect the people on the ground actually doing the job. And you don't really realize it until it's been set out like this, do you? I've never really thought. Obviously, I, I know that if somebody produces a new pathway or, or does something within a trust that you have to adhere to, you just kind of get on with it because it's a part of your role. But I don't think you actually probably comprehend how much goes on in the background and how much it affects you in your daily job. That's a
1: really interesting point, AJ. Certainly, the system complexity, when we are very clinically focused, certainly when we're in training and our early days of being a qualified ACP, we probably don't think too much about these, but it is part of the leadership pillar and it is something to encourage us all to explore, because although we sometimes feel we don't have much influence, we we can join special interest groups, groups within the trusts, groups within um, HEE and NHS Improvement, and and get involved in your local ICS groups so you can influence and and almost extol the virtues of advanced clinical practice because we do need people out there sort of selling selling the role.
0: Yeah, I think, Tim, I think you're absolutely right, and it is there's so much more going on out there and uh, being an experienced clinician with some leadership skills and even having a bit of background in research and having some evidence-based knowledge puts you in a really good place to help influence change doesn't it and I think more and more we're seeing that now where ACPs are being invited to chair certain groups we're developing these communities of practice especially within the training hubs and the PCNs and all, all those kind of areas and I think we are having a bit more of an influence it's definitely developing um, I think I Think, but you just I, I, I hadn't really even realized this until we I'd seen this slide and talked it through with you just now that there's all this stuff going on and we are actually influencing change so that's really interesting so should we pick up the last one Tim clinical complexities this is probably the one that people most au fait with have more knowledge about than anything else I think definitely I did Could, should we touch on a few headlines on there
1: Thank you, yes, you're absolutely right. I try to resist clinical complexity to the last because it's intuitively what we, we go for. And, and certainly um, I feel much more familiar talking about this subject. And um, So clinical complexity is what we see every day in our patients. So patients come with um, comorbidities, polypharmacy, there's often multi-organ involvement. Um, there is people who are in pain, which um, confounds sometimes our assessment processes there are multiple diagnostics and imaging. And there are sometimes things like cascades of intervention and investigation, people end up on a pathway, and it's quite hard to get people off pathways. And actually, as ACPs, we need to be thinking broadly, so we we don't go too much down rabbit holes. And finally, and one thing I want to talk a little bit more about is is, is the linear reductionist paradigm. And by this I mean that we sometimes are taught that things happen in a certain order. So a patient presents with X symptom, they, um, we do certain tests and we um, easily exclude some of the differentials and, and, and then we diagnose the patient, treat them and the patient's discharged. But what we do know in reality, the more complex patients we see is it's never linear. In fact, and especially as a junior, we can be confused by the complex patient or uncertainty where there is a high degree of uncertainty and multiple possible diagnoses, and we're we're easily confused by sort of peripherals, potentially peripheral symptoms, but we don't know if they're important or
0: not. I can empathise with this situation um, and it wasn't until I started working in world of GP practices and learning from our general practitioners who are experts in complexity and managing comorbidities and and medication and it wasn't until I saw all of or or had experience of working in that environment that I appreciated how to manage these complexities and it still scares me now because there's so much going on with some patients especially with things like renal failure and medication (laughs) Oh, that's that's <laughs> that, that for me is a big one. But when you see the G, these expert GPS practitioners that are amazing, then you can, you, can, you can see the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel.
1: You're absolutely right, AJ. Certainly the consultant level practitioner, the GP or the experienced ACP has learned to navigate that journey through the patient's symptoms and various tests and decide what's important and they don't seem too anxious about it either when you start as a novice you spend a lot of time worrying and sleepless nights worrying about that kind of thing
0: yeah I think they I think you become a a master of risk management (laughs) I think that's really what's happening here and 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 I think you're right it's you can't always send everybody home feeling completely well again you will send some patients home still in pain with that sciatic back pain because you haven't been able to cure it And you may have been able to help with the pain, but it might not ever go away. But that's something you may is out of your control. And that's very difficult. So, yeah, I I completely, um, I completely get that.
1: Certainly the, the linear reductionist paradigm is a fallacy, really, because as you progress through your journey, you do realize that actually sometimes we may not be able to provide a definitive diagnosis or a cure or a treatment. And that's quite dissatisfying when you first start out. I think part of that journey is sort of realising that we we may not get there, but hopefully what we do do in most cases is we progress the patient along that journey, even if it's to rule something out. Um, and I
0: think that is part of the journey of advanced clinical practice. Yeah, definitely. There's a, the, I've, I found that going through my journey, there's a whole lot of growth <laughs> and, and you learn so much along the way. And there are so many things within this slide that I've I looked at and can think. Oh, I've I've done that. I've felt this. I've been there. So, Tim, so these healthcare complexities encompass systems, situational, and clinical. What advice or help can you give the trainee, advanced practitioner, or even the qualified advanced practitioner out there to help nav- navigate through these healthcare complexities?
1: Well, I think the good news is there are some things we can do to help. We've already know it's a wicked problem. There is no one answer. And certainly when I first started, I thought the answer was knowledge because that's what I felt I needed to learn the most. And to a certain extent, it is true. I first started as a trainee emergency practitioner many years ago, every day on the tube, I was reading books and it certainly helped. But as I grew and expanded my practice, it wasn't just knowledge I needed. And really I've summarized it up in that um, in many ways, what you need and what we do know in our practice is we need experiential learning and to summarize we need to swim in the sea of uncertainty we need to experience supervised practice in the real world with experienced clinicians to get great feedback and sort of see how, and sort of absorb how they deal with these situations and to a certain extent it's time in that uh, environment so
0: I love this term swimming in the sea of uncertainty. And you've got this great picture. I'm just going to describe it of this scuba diver under the sea and he's looking around him and he's got about seven sharks around him all looking at him thinking he looks like a tasty morsel, which is, which is exactly how it can feel, can't it? Sometimes when you're with that patient, you're a little bit out of your depth, you're, you're swimming in the deep end and that's exactly how it feels. And, and I think you're right. It is absolutely as time goes on, experience allows you to be able to deal with these situations. And you, you've, you've touched on a, a thing that's the massive buzzword at the moment, supervision of practice, which is the reason we're here today, which is to talk about how we can try and navigate these issues. And, and supervision is obviously a massive thing for the advanced practice community at the moment. So what type of um, supervision tips or activities can you give our listeners that you think that might help them get through their current situation? So certainly
1: on a day-to-day basis, we need sort of supervisors, um, and, and this will vary from individual work environment. We need supervisors that understand the role development requirements of ACP, understand their base knowledge and their background. We need supervisors that are kind that um, and approachable. Certainly in the early days of advanced practice, this was quite challenging when different professional groups uh, mixed there was definitely challenges because different uh, professional groups had different ways of uh, giving feedback but certainly really to encourage sort of openness within those roles and good sort of feedback mechanisms that are supportive and that will include trainees uh, training of the uh, supervisors with potentially some specific requirements around
0: supervising at, um, ACPs and about the requirements. So we're talking about supervisors knowing the curriculum the trajectory of the trainees so they can understand where that trainee is at that time aren't we
1: absolutely and it's building those relationships so that each of the tra- the supervisor and the supervisee understand each other develop a way and a, a way of feeding back to each other that's sort of non-confrontational that's supportive and gives um, development plans that are
0: realistic and smart i'm going to say that supervisor relationship is really important isn't it you have to feel like It's a safe space. You have to feel like you're able to reflect openly and honestly on, on the situation in hand, on your caseload, for want of a better word, for that patient you've just seen, and be really open and come to that table and say, look, I'm not sure I did this correctly, or I have done this really well. Can we discuss it or talk about it? Tim, what other types of activities would you include in your sort of um, non-linear learning or non-linear supervision activities? What other types of things do you think should be included?
1: So certainly within the supervisor relationship, there are lots of things that many people do already. So case based discussions and case presentations are a really good way of doing it. Often done outside the pressurised clinic environment where there is time for reflection and good feedback and support. There is also a thing that we probably do every day that we don't acknowledge, which is peer-to-peer support with our colleagues. And that involves around storytelling. How many times have you, uh, your colleagues, or you told a story about a patient you saw the other day and about the learning, obviously within a confidential environment. But actually, it's this hidden sort of learning that we do every day that we don't appreciate. But actually, we do pick up things like that, and we learn top tips. And um, so storytelling as part of a mutual and and peer-to-peer sort of support is really important. Another method that can be used is uh, the significant event analysis exercise. This was originally piloted by NHS Scotland, and uh, I think it was in primary care. It really looked at where um, a patient interaction had gone wrong or um, an event had occurred. It could be negative, but actually it can also be used for positive learning. And really, it's a much more holistic way of looking at the event, but looking at all those situational complexity things we talked about. So human factors that had an influence, environmental factors. So that's another broader way of looking at learning. Other methods include simulation training, which concentrates on team dynamics and the team approach, quality improvement exercises. There's a big push now uh, within learning for us all to learn quality improvement techniques. And that's, again, a chance for advanced clinical practitioners to influence from within
0: to really change practice. And I think from just going back a little bit there, you've mentioned the case-based discussion and case presentation and then the quality improvement exercises. They both hit a couple of our advanced practice pillars, don't they, really nicely. So the case-based, the case presentations, we can bring in a little bit of teaching and sharing our learning with junior members of staff or peers as well. And then the quality improvement kind of gets you on that research trajectory, doesn't it? Starts you to look at data gets you to start to think about how we can improve the services we deliver and they're they're really good things to get done nice and early in that master's journey aren't they because they're going to help you later on
1: some other things you can do obviously team building exercises and within across teams so multi-professional or within the acp team itself and other things that uh, uh, include conferences workshops informal visits to other units I suppose it is also worth mentioning, along with swimming in the sea of uncertainty within your own clinical area, you can also go to other areas and, um, of speciality. So in ED, you may want to gain some cardiology experience, just to spend some time with the cardiology ACPs or the consultants, and really getting it helps, all helps contribute towards building that broad base of knowledge and experience that you can apply later on uh, down the line in clinical practice. There is one other thing that we can do as individuals that will indirectly help us on this journey to be advanced clinical practitioners. And uh, it's going to sound a bit strange, but it really builds on human factors. And that is to wear a name badge with your first name on it, preferably in a really big font. So on a personal level, it really helps cut through that social red tape. It allows colleagues around you and p- people that are supervising you and giving you advice to just uh, to use your first name. And it bestows a special meaning to, to you. So immediately you feel warmth to that individual and feedback is much more, it, much, much easier to give or and receive. It also it reduces hierarchy it promotes safety because people feel they can come and talk to you without uh, having to um, often, you know, the traditional name badge is your ID badge and often half the time it's around the wrong way and it's the font so small you can't read it.
0: I think you've hit on loads of really good reasons to do it (laughs) and there are very few bad reasons not to do it so I think that's something we could probably all learn from so that's really nice. So I'm just going to have a little recap, swimming in the sea of uncertainty and things that we can do to try and help us through that and there are peer-to-peer support groups where we can share opportunities providing some case-based discussions we can hit those case presentations and those quality improvements to help us hit those pillars of advanced practice we can do some significant event analysis exercises which often happen after really good or really bad experiences but for both reasons they should be done simulation training is always fun team building exercises and having that day off and going to a conference or a workshop which is all Always lovely. So just to finish, Tim, we're going to just talk a little bit about cognitive bias. So do you want to tell me a little bit about that?
1: So finally, I think cognitive bias, learning about cognitive bias and being aware of it's really important. And uh, I know you will have probably studied this in, in other forums. But um, part of this non-linear learning is really just recognizing that we are fallible. Our brains do take shortcuts, and there are there are lots of cognitive biases that talked about, so anchor bias, getting caught up on one particular thing and not being able to think about what other things could be involved or confirmation bias as tests come back and uh, we've got an idea of a diagnosis and the more and more test results come back they confirm that but uh, we get tunnel vision and we forget that actually there could be other causes. I think the the overriding thing and uh, is to
0: always assume you could be wrong yeah definitely I always think I remember from when I did my training and I think one of the biases I think it's triage bias And it's if somebody's already put a diagnosis down on it then you take that away with you when you pick up that patient out of the box and and you've got that in the back of your mind already and it's it's never a good place to be it? and you learn so quickly that that's really not the right thing to do yeah I think there are so many biases aren't there that the, the work around this area of um of human fact is huge now. There's so much out there you can read, but I think absolutely, Tim, having a knowledge that they exist and that you are vulnerable to them is really important. Brilliant. Right, Tim Yorston, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you for inviting me, AJ. I really enjoyed it. We've talked a lot about complexities in healthcare and nonlinear learning, and it's been great having you on the program. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Join us next week for more advanced practice topics and we'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you.